Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 60 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome to another episode, Moira. Hi. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. So in this episode, we're going to talk about burnout. And the reason I wanted to talk about burnout is it is something that I'm seeing a lot of in my practice. I don't think it's something that's new in my practice necessarily, but certainly seeing a lot of people who at face value present with what they think may be a simple sleep problem and will do some work and tidy up sleep, but then find there's still significant symptoms, still feeling very tired. And in me trying to think about, well, how can I improve that? What else might be going on? Burnout is one of the things that may, that I think of in terms of a subgroup of people may have burnout as part of their initial presentation. Yeah, and I, I would I would agree. And I would say it's been a function of the COVID-19 pandemic for sure. But as you're right, but it's been there the whole time. It hasn't, it's not a new thing. Perhaps they used to be able to cope a bit better and then, but their coping mechanisms aren't there. Yeah, it's a really good point because that's what's kept us both busy through the pandemic is yeah, people's normal coping mechanisms have all been taken away. Going to the beach, for instance, like if it's not in your 5K zone or going for a weekend away or the things that used to reset people have really contributed largely. And oh, we can get into more discussions about what, what has contributed to it, but I would agree there's a high degree of burnout. So to help understand burnout and what it is, we spoke to Professor Gordon Parker, who's Professor of Psychiatry at University of New South Wales and founder of the Black Dog Institute. Gordon's also recently published a book on burnout. Thanks very much for joining us, Gordon. Can I start off by asking you, what is burnout? Well, there's an official definition that's been uh, dominant for some 40 years. And essentially, it's a set of three principal symptoms. Uh, And those symptoms are exhaustion. Secondly, originally called depersonalization, but more commonly called loss of empathy. And in fact, in the medical profession, it's been described at times as compassion fatigue. And thirdly, and predictably, reduced work performance. That triadic definition of three symptoms has dominated research for, as I suggested, 40 years, in that there is a measure that uses those three domains, and over 90% of published papers use that particular measure, the Maslick Burnout Inventory. Our research challenges that model, and I should also point out that ICD-11 has largely accepted that triadic model. So... Our research certainly identifies exhaustion across the day and pretty well unremitting. Secondly, the concept of loss of empathy, we have a richer and broader descriptor. People more report a lack of feeling tone. They just don't get any joy to V out of anything. Uh, Eventually, if the Wallabies ever win, um, it's not going to make anyone say, you know, wobba, wobba, if they've got burnout. And so they tend to become fairly insular, keep to themselves, avoid socialising because they're not getting anything out of it. So I, I think that broader construct rather than just loss of empathy, and in fact I've seen many medical practitioners who say 
with burnout, their empathy is actually increased towards their patients because they now have an understanding of what psychological distress can feel like. The third component is a very important one, and that's cognitive impairment. And what people with burnout will say is, my capacity to remember, to retain information is compromised. And when I read, I find that I'm more scanning rather than reading in any depth. And that cognitive impairment is evident in many previous research studies. So it's not unique to us. In addition, there's, and predictably, there is compromised work performance. You couldn't imagine it otherwise. And in addition, there's a tale of other psychological symptoms, which is not surprising in the sense that you've got a primary condition, you'd expect it would cause distress. So about 50% of people will report symptoms of anxiety or depression. Uh, insomnia is, is very common, despite people feeling exhausted. And in relation to that last point, they'll often say um, that they don't find sleep refreshing. And after that can come a whole set of fascinating physical symptoms. So that, in fact, um, in our book on burnout, we have a final chapter written by somebody who just, in essence, crashed to the ground. When she was taken to ED, her blood pressure was something like 60 over 40 and her pulse rate was 140. Arianna Huffington of Huffington Post fame fell over and cracked her head as she fell to the ground. So it can come on in very physical ways. Um, not necessarily symptoms, but immune functioning can also be compromised. So people will tend to report uh, more infections. The other aspect about our model compared to the dominant model that has influenced so much thinking for 40 years is that there are two components. The, the first is that work has been seen as the central driver of burnout. And the implication for a long period of time, if not the explication, was it affected people in formal workplaces. And what we find is that people who have demanding home responsibilities, such as a mother looking after you know, disabled, intellectually challenged children, um, a mother, again, maybe looking after children, but also frail relatives with, say, dementia, and maybe also trying to hold down a job. So when it's in the home, the, the features are exactly the same. So we broaden it from the workplace to suggest it can also occur in the home environment. And the other aspect is we know most psychiatric psychological conditions can be positioned as diathesis stress disorders, meaning predisposing and precipitating factors. Usually the diathesis predisposing factor is a genetic one. In this instance, we put down personality. And as I say, previous formulations have ignored personality, just saying it's basically a reaction between work situations impacting on the individual. What we find is that burnout is most likely to be experienced by those who are good people. And by that, I mean reliable, conscientious, dutiful, if not perfectionistic. And that's a very important component of the model, because if you're wanting to manage burnout, it's not just a matter of looking at the work stresses and coming up with de-stressing strategies, but 
they're also a great advantage to considering what personality nuances may be involved. So dutifulness perfectionism is the most common, and then after that would be type A personality. So that's, that's the model that uh, we've uh, employed in the last couple of years. It's interesting. A lot of those symptoms you describe overlap with people that might be seeing me in my office coming with insomnia. And we identify perfectionistic traits, for example, as a risk factor for insomnia. And people may report cognitive impairment, difficulty with memory, the type of things you've described. Yes. And you know, often for me, it is trying to tease out, well, when's it insomnia? When does this start and finish just as a sleep disorder versus when is it going to be a much broader thing and occurring as part of burnout because those symptoms overlap so much? You got yeah. any, any tips for me? How am I going to tease those two things apart? Right. Well, I think I've approached the question in a broader way, if I could. Um, we developed the Sydney Burnout Measure, which captures all those symptoms and domains that I've talked about. And what we find is that it's got high sensitivity. It'll pick up um, people who truly have burnout, but its specificity is modest at best. And that holds for all measures of burnout, but that is rarely conceded, acknowledged or recognised. People can come along and report those classic burnout symptoms that I've just, just described, but they may more have anemia or they may be on chemotherapy. <laughs> all sorts of other psychological and physical explanations can come into play. And therefore, in the book, as a consequence of this problem with specificity, we say that, in fact, the screening or the questionnaire should only be viewed as a screening measure. And then after that, we try to encourage people, when they read the book, to employ clinical reasoning. Is this more likely to be explained by some physical state or is there an alternative uh, diagnosis? And it may be insomnia, it may be depression, it may be a whole series of things. And that's where it, it obviously, that's where it gets difficult. But one of the key components to being a helpful medical practitioner is to have the capacity to employ pattern analysis. I mean, it's a really fascinating phenomenon, but uh, I went around and asked a whole series of senior doctors, basically guys in their late 60s and 70s, physicians, not just psychiatrists, physicians in all realms. And I said, when was it that you hit your diagnostic peak? And they all said in their 60s. Basically, they were saying it took a minimum of 30 years to be able to do the pattern analysis at a high level. And if you respect uh, Malcolm Gladwell's aphorism of the 10,000 hours phenomenon, <clears throat> that fits fairly well. So in a sense, your question invites a more expanded answer. When a patient presents with a set of symptoms, the key issue is to make the most likely diagnosis and then come up with a whole set of differential diagnoses. And that is clearly the task with burnout, that you have to exclude physical explanations and you also have to exclude other psychological explanations. And the most common one is, is depression. So if I'm then saying to a patient, you know what, this just doesn't smell like insomnia. There's more to it than that. Is that me reaching into that pattern analysis and my experience? Because that's often how I'm reflecting back or thinking about things with patients is they'll be describing the sleep disturbance, the daytime impairment, 
But I'll be going, nah, there's other bits that don't fit as part of this this pattern. Yeah, yeah. Of pure yeah, I mean, I, I have a tendency as a clinician, if I'm really confident, and I'll apologise before, and I'll say this sounds really arrogant, but I'm 100% that you've got X, say bipolar disorder. If I'm not so confident, I might say, look, I'm pretty confident, 50% confident you've got bipolar disorder. But there are a couple of reasons why I'm not totally confident about it. When we go through the symptoms, you know, you're missing a few. There's not the family history or whatever. And I think that's the way in which most medical practitioners work, particularly if you work in a field where you haven't got a blood test or an X-ray that's going to give you a definitive diagnosis. And that's where pattern analysis really comes, comes into the issue. If you're wanting to clarify the likelihood, then if somebody gives you um, a set of features that sound like burnout, then obviously you'd want to um, chase the issue of work stress, be it formal work or at home, and you'd expect the individual to describe fairly severe, if not horrendous, work situations or an incredibly harassing or bullying boss or organisation or they're in a major conflict over the core values. So you expect them to be describing work stresses and a sense of learned helplessness along with it. And you'd expect they'd come up with all the symptoms. And when you asked you know, questions such as, what does it all feel like if you, you know, have a holiday or you, um, you know, have a decent break? In that instance, you would expect the person while they're still in a burning out phase with some elasticity, just for that simple question to say, oh, yes, if I have a week off or I don't go, if I take sick leave from work and don't go in for a week, I do feel a lot better. So there are certain clues as you work your way through the diagnosis and differential diagnosis as applies to all aspects of medicine. And what do we know about the biology of burnout? We don't have biomarkers in a diagnostic sense, but are there some physiological characteristics that seem to occur in burnout? Um, A whole series of um, changes occur in the brain. So basically, it's the fight-flight mechanism comes into play, and then you get the HPA axis um, involved, and both of them are in overdrive. And there's a very interesting story in regard to cortisol, If you look at the studies of cortisol in burnout, you get about 50% saying cortisol is high, 50% saying cortisol levels are low. And then most people say, oh, that's because it's difficult to know when to measure it, what time of the day, whether you measure, you know, salivary, blood, whatever, whatever. But in fact, our um, work suggests that Hooke's law is probably in operation. Remember when we went to school and we're told you could stretch your body within its level of elasticity and it would bounce back? But if you stretch it beyond its level of elasticity, it wouldn't bounce back. And I think that corresponds to burning out phases and burnt out phases. And our hypothesis at the moment is that during the burning out phase, you've got high cortisol levels. And then in the burnt out phase, you get very low cortisol. And that's something paraphrases adrenal fatigue by a particular individual. So the the effect of all those interruptions 
then affects multiple areas of the brain, particularly the amygdala, the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex. Um, you get structural changes, you get functional changes. Even the length of telomeres gets, gets shortened. So there's quite a profound effect on the brain, both structurally and functionally. Importantly, a Sydney um, journalist, Sharon Harvey, um, who's experiencing burnout, wired herself up to everything you can think of and practiced mindfulness and meditation for a year and basically was able to show on every biological parameter that was compromised at the beginning, she improved, including the telomeres uh, regrowing, if you like. But during the actual burning up phase, neuroplasticity is, is slowed down, BDNF levels drop and so on and so forth. So the impact on the brain is major. And that, I think, goes a long way to explaining the cognitive impairment that people report. But while it is severe and diffuse uh, and multi-system in the brain, if you like, the key point I'd like to emphasize is that it is reversible. Yeah, and that is a very important point and certainly gives people hope and gives people that incentive to, okay, if I make some changes, I will be able to move forward. So on that note, if people do think they're experiencing burnout, what should they do? The first thing to do is to consider what is it about your work that is excessively demanding, putting pressure on you, making feel that you just can't get time away from it all. And so in our book, we have an appendix and people can just simply go through and tick all the boxes that apply to them. So the first thing is to identify your triggers, get them in a pretty black and white way and line those ducks up. The second aspect is to consider de-stressing strategies. In one of our studies, we talked to many hundreds of people and we said, what's most helpful? And they said, having a holiday, exercise. And then after that came mindfulness and meditation. After that came, you know, 20 other options, but certainly having a break and having stress reducing strategies and mindfulness and meditation are probably the, the best, but not for everybody. For somebody who's very type A, I mean, they're not going to get into mindfulness and meditation, but yoga or, you know, exercise mindfulness might work for them. So the second component then is the de-stressing strategies to be employed. And the third one, and I think in many ways, this is often the most important one, is addressing the personality style. I get quite a lot of people in the public service from Canberra who are absolutely burnt out. They've got harassing bosses and they come along and it's an impasse. They've been to HR, but HR is probably on the side of the boss. They have tried taking sick leave. They've tried doing this. They've tried doing that. But because they're dutiful, they don't even consider the option of getting out of the job. So perfectionism can be not only a driver to burnout, but can be a big preventive aspect to not getting out of the work when in, those, in some circumstances, the most appropriate thing is to actually leave the job. So you can either redress the work triggers and drivers, or at times it's important to get out of the actual environment. So dutiful and reliable people 
just don't want to do that. And so in a sense, you often have to try to lever them out and just say, you know, consider another life. It's not a loss. So we have a couple of chapters on perfectionism, and we also have a really good clinical psychologist who's managing people with perfectionism and OCD every day of the week. And he's written a very, I think, useful overview of the strategies that perfectionistic people should employ as a way of de-stressing. So it's, it's a model that addresses the diathesis predisposing factor, the personality, as well as the precipitants. What about at a broader structural level? So not at an individual level, but for example, the culture of public service that will drive people in that way. And we certainly have this culture where we value industriousness and busyness and don't value self-care. Are there things as a society structurally wise we can do to help reduce the burden of burnout in society? I think I can best approach that by pointing to the huge interest in in burnout currently. And if you look up books on burnout, you'll get sort of 60 books all published in the last five years. If you look at the statistics, they show that roughly 30% of workers will experience burnout over their lifetime. Uh, Even higher rates in health practitioners, doctors and nurses, all formal carers, whether they're health, whether they're teachers, whether they're vets, and most importantly and intriguingly, even in the clergy. So the caring professions are overrepresented. In recent years, within each profession, there have been a number of profession-specific nuances that are really driving burnout. But if we take a broader perspective, then really the answer is a fairly predictable one. It's the increasing technological imperatives that have come across our lives and interfered with our lives over recent decades. And people were writing books expressing concern about this 20 years ago, but it's actually got a lot worse. So basically, the real risk is that we're constantly on. That is, people can reach us on our mobile phone or some other technique 24 hours of the day, and we don't turn turn them off. And that's, in a sense, crept into a a technological uh, consciousness as a way in which we see the world. We have the demands of the technology have made us feel that we have to keep busy and keep doing something. And... That's why in Huffington's book, I mean, she talks about executives who got irritated with having to pee for 30 seconds because it was taking too long and how others would, you know, be on their phone while they're reading a goodnight book to their kids. (laughs) The, 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 The increasing requirement to multiphase, the intense preoccupation of being on your emails on Zoom all day long, far more demanding than previous existence of, you know, chatting to other people socially. So there's no doubt that the technological imperatives to be always available cause us to feel that we must always be on and not step away from it. And when you look at the average adolescent over a dinner table or walking down the street with their phone in their face the whole time, this is going to get a lot worse. So thanks very much for those insights. That's been really helpful.
Thank you, David. So it was really great to be able to interview Gordon. How does that help in the way you conceptualise what's going on with some of the people that we see, Moira? There's more to discuss. I think it's great that we can have this you know, post-interview discussion around it's, there's a lot of over, I would still say there's, it's not discreet. I don't think he implied it was discreet because it's, I think there's people who have burnout who absolutely could still have a mood disturbance and, and anxiety and, uh, and, you know, and the insomnia might have started from other things and, so, and, and being perpetuated by perhaps the burnout. So, uh, yeah, what, do you, what about you? What's, what are your reflections? Yeah, that's a really good point that, you know, clinical practice and what people present with is not as clean as mm. saying someone's got a single problem and they fit yeah. into a, a single box. Yeah. And it is a bit like, you know, peeling the onion and working out what the different layers are and trying to address those layers. Mm. And so I do find the concept of burnout helpful for people we see in recognising, okay, if that's a layer, we might get sleep okay, but there's still fatigue there. And it's not that the target is now change sleep from being okay to absolutely perfect to fix mm. the fatigue. It's mm. let's manage the fatigue by looking at well, what may be factors um, perpetuating burnout, what yeah. are some other general self-care strategies that might help in um, changing those fatigue symptoms. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point. I think um, especially the listeners who might be maybe new clinicians, I remember me maybe 15 years ago being really fantastic thinking I was really good with my CBTI and helping people sleep was getting much better but then I thought wow why are they still exhausted yeah it would have been useful to have this kind of discussion then Uh, so it's why we I suppose why we having why we bring this to the podcast to have these these discussions because that's the yeah that's the point sometimes the sleep's fine the other stressors are fine but 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 the fatigue and the Lack of empathy, you know, low empathy, low energy, low confidence, all that sort of stuff is still there. And it also raises the question of what's this term non-restorative sleep? So, you know, that can be mm. one of the things in burnout, but mm. it's also one of the symptoms in insomnia. Well, I was going to say, it's part of the, yeah, part of the diagnostic but it, but it implies that the fatigue is because sleep's not doing its job and it puts mm. the onus back on sleep. And that's also something I find a challenge clinically because sometimes I think, yeah, sleep, sleep's okay. It's work. It's working okay. What about all these other factors over here that may well be adding to fatigue? But yeah. calling it non-restorative sleep or um, unrestorative sleep just keeps the focus back on sleep and puts all the blame on sleep. And I think that maybe back in the day there was, you know, the- well, at the moment, for instance, psychology, like a lot of people are maybe the sleep clinicians, sleep physicians aren't working alongside psychologists, for instance, might be very hard to get people in to see psychologists, but realising that this, yeah, to, to, have, to start having these discussions themselves and say, well, maybe maybe think about how much of it could be burnout um, and start doing a bit of that initial education or self-awareness in the clients while they're waiting, if they do indeed need to go and see a psychologist, they might, they might be able to do a lot of it themselves and like the sort of stuff that Gordon was talking about, perhaps, you know, perhaps addressing things in their workplace or addressing things uh, in their their caring responsibilities outside of how much sleep they're getting. If people are looking for more information, uh, the book we've been referring to is called Burnout and it was published by uh, Alan and Unwin and authored by Gordon Parker, Gabriella Tavella and Kerry Hines. So Dave, what's the clinical tip We have covered it somewhat already, but really thinking about if someone's presenting with sleep problems or if you yourself have sleep problems, 
and are exhausted during the day, just thinking about, well, could it be that that sleep disturbance and exhaustion may be something like burnout rather than necessarily being driven just purely as a sleep's not working, therefore I'm tired during the day, answer is fixed sleep. And for a lot of people we see, the blind spot in when I'm trying to manage insomnia is what they do during the day. Whereas in fact, the night is really the mirror of the day. And so yeah. just recognise if there are things going on in your day that may be turning up that nervous energy or causing you to be low in energy, they may well also be causing changes in sleep and changes in how you feel through the day. So what's your pick of the month, Moira? Well, I want to talk about uh, a website called This Way Up and it's run by clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, researchers and technicians based at the Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety and Depression, a joint facility of St Vincent's Hospital and the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And I'm not sure how much I've talked about it before, but it's very timely at the moment. We talk about burnout and talk about people really quite distressed in the, in the global pandemic and not and waiting lists being really high and hard to get people in to see mental health professionals. So it's a, a self-help um, online free courses for a range of things around. Um, there's a course on depression and worry, um, anxiety. There's one on insomnia. There's one on post-traumatic stress. So there's a whole lot of things that you can refer people to and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, and it's, the wonderful thing is that most of it, all of it, in fact, is for free. Yeah, it's a really great resource. I must admit I use that quite a lot. And yeah. as a clinician, I can refer people in and it allows me to then track their progress through the program. And for patients themselves or people themselves with sleep problems, they don't need to be referred in. They can actually self-refer and that's right. Work straight through up. these programs. Yeah, sign up themselves. So, yeah, I often talk about it if I'm doing any, um, like, say, public messaging, if I'm on the radio or those sorts of things I do sometimes. It's a, it's a really good resource. And it wasn't free. It was only during COVID that it became free. What about you? What's your pick of the month, Dave? So my pick is a course on perfectionism. We've both gone for online oh, gone the sort of d- delivery. So this isn't a sort of interactive course like This Way Up. This is more a workbook-based self-help program uh, on f- perfectionism run or offered via the Centre for Clinical Interventions, which is run by the West Australian Government. And again, that's come up because a common thing we see for a lot of people is Yes, they've got sleep disturbance, but one of the things underpinning that sleep disturbance may be traits of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. also a strong thing underpinning risk of burnout. So as a tool to try to help address that, this is a really nice self-help resource. Good on you. Yeah, I do a lot of, I have a lot of worksheets and a lot of really good information from that CCI over in WA. So what's coming up in future episodes, Dave? So in the next episode, we're going to talk about lucid dreaming and we've done a great interview with a neuroscientist who works in this area. So look out for that episode. Something I'm also seeing in clinical practice and as part of my own professional development reading around to try to sort of think about is people with early life trauma and developmental trauma and the impact that has on sleep later on in life. Because I see people not only with insomnia, but also with fatigue and sleepiness during the day that as a consequence of early life trauma. So that's um, sort of summarised in a diagnosis called complex PTSD. So although we've also done previous episodes on PTSD, I might uh, try and work up an episode to look at this what is complex PTSD and 
what are the sleep manifestations of that later in life and approaches to treating that. So thanks a lot for listening. Send us any suggestions that you have. We love to feature early career researchers and email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And of course, if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe, tell your friends and work colleagues about the podcast. We love to share the news about the importance of sleep and and hear all these wonderful um, international experts. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.